Would you pray with me? Father, speak to your people through your people. Would you anoint the words of my mouth to speak only what you have in mind for us this morning? Nothing else. In the name of Christ do we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you, as always. Today is our final day in Mark's travelogue. Our particular journey ends here as we begin to lean ever so slightly towards Advent. Next week is Christ the King Sunday, and then we're in Advent in two weeks. I can hardly believe it, but it is two weeks away. We'll be in Luke's gospel for most of 2019. Now, the gospel passage, which we'll be in today, uh, Mark 13, 1 through 8, uh, is rather odd and ominous, isn't it? Um, All of chapter 13 is about the signs that precede the second coming of Jesus. It's an apocalyptic passage with strong eschatological, i.e., end times overtones. It's also full of prophecy, okay? Prophecy which has partly been fulfilled and partly which remains to be accomplished. This is the now and not yet of the prophetic word, which is often how prophecy works in the scriptures. There's two great events that Jesus speaks of here. One's the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? That's an event that happened a few decades after our Lord was crucified. And the second piece is his second coming, his coming in glory, an event which is yet to occur, but we may yet live to see with our eyes. We shall see. So Mark 13, 1 through 8. Uh, if you follow the conversation here, it takes quite a turn. Uh, things get heavy. We talk about the temple, and then things get a little bit heavier Uh, if you can imagine that. So let's hit the first part. We'll hit the heavy, and then we'll hit the heavier, okay? So they exit the temple, and the disciples are struck by its grandeur and its scale. And there's almost like a, a, I guess, a patriotic sense of pride in how they speak about Jesus. You know, it's almost, this is the message translation, not really, but close. Jesus, get a load of this. Look at this. Isn't this incredible? Now, a church or cathedral is supposed to invoke awe and glory, isn't it? Beauty and scale are to point us back to God. So the architecture and the beauty of it, we're supposed to feel in awe. We're supposed to feel appropriately small, yet connected to something greater. Uh, I had the great privilege of going to a St. Francis's church in Assisi in Italy, and it still has an active worshiping community. And I have to say, the, the sense of palpable peace in that place was incredible. I have experienced that in very few places, but I experienced there. It was truly sacred space, because the worship of God, of the living God, is ongoing there. Now, the entire temple was to be such a sacred space, is a magnificent sign pointing to God himself in a place where his spirit dwelt. But without God, what is it? Well, it's just a building. It's a facade, an empty shell in need of true purpose. And there are plenty of other cathedrals in Europe like that, places of faded glory where no worship of the living God really is going on. So there's appearance juxtaposed with reality. We're going to keep playing with appearance and reality in the next few weeks. So let me tell you a little bit about the temple. I want you to just, if you can, as I'm talking about this, try to get it in your mind's eye, okay? So I want to give you a sense for this place. So with the help of the Romans, and they were the engineering geniuses of their day and age, the much-loathed Herod rebuilt the temple. And this is the third iteration, okay? Started in 19 BC, which is before Jesus was born took 46 years to complete just the main building, and then another 36 to finish off the entire temple complex. So it's still under construction at the time of this passage that we're reading. It took a tremendous amount of money and labor, and it was a larger, by all accounts, and even more beautiful temple than the one that Solomon built. Okay, So it is impressive. Josephus, the historian 
uh, says this about it. He talked about how much of the exterior of the temple was covered in gold. So if you can picture this, when the sun hit it, the fiery rays of the sun hit it, it reflected off of it. So even from a distance, the temple appeared like a mountain covered in snow. So beautiful. And it's set on a hill, too, so remember that. So you kind of have that picture in your mind's eye a little bit. Does that help? It was a magnificent structure of awesome proportions. Okay? In Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, there was nothing more awe-inspiring or more, keyword, permanent a fixture as the temple. It was a shining beacon. Okay? And at that time, it was literally one of the wonders of the world. So when you think of like going to see the Great Wall or the pyramids, that was sort of the status the temple held at that day and age. It was impressive, and it was beautiful. Okay? Let's talk about the temple beyond the appearances. Let's talk about reality, what the temple was supposed to be. The temple was the center of Jewish life. It was the center of worship. Your Jewish identity, and I can't overstate this enough, your Jewish identity was directly connected to that place and the worship that surrounded it. It's the place to which you made pilgrimages to every few years, or every, a few times a year, actually. It's where prayers were offered. It's where the sacrifices were made. It's where you gave God your money, where you brought your first fruits. Okay? It's a place of festivals, a place of celebrations. The place where the Holy of Holies was, which the high priest could enter but once a year. It was everything. If you were Jewish, you have to think about the importance of the temple. Now, the problem that Jesus gets into throughout Mark is folks were so awestruck and impressed with the grandeur of the temple that they replaced the worship of God with reverence for the temple itself, right? We're kind of mixing up appearance and reality there. You forget which is which. And it had become a grand yet empty shell of what it was supposed to be. And we see this again and again in Mark's gospel as we watch Jesus critique what had become of worship in the temple. Now, we're no strangers to this. We can all do this, right? God gives us a good gift. We end up worshiping the gift or the said benefit of the gift, and we forget the Lord in that. We worship it more than him. You know, that's why Jesus, I think, hits on money and stuff so much, because it's just it's an easy target. It's low-hanging fruit. Listen to what J.C. Ryle has to say about the temple here and what, what, kind of what's going on here in verses 1 and 2, which is where we're at. Let us learn from this solemn saying, that the true glory of a church does not consist in its buildings for public worship, but in the faith and godliness of its members. The eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ could find no pleasure in looking at the very temple which contained the Holy of Holies and the golden candlestick and the altar of burnt offering. Much less, may we suppose, can he find pleasure in the most splendid places of worship among professing, professing Christians Excuse me, if his word and spirit are not honored in it. It may be all form and show and appeal to the senses, but there may be nothing to satisfy the conscience and nothing to cure the heart. So there's probably a cautionary tale for us in that. A building is not going to be a cure for our ills here at King of Kings, right? It's not. So Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Disciples, this will be destroyed. This will be thrown down, I believe is what he says. This all goes away. And there's more than a note of sadness in Jesus' reply. Certainly as Golgotha looms in the distance for him. He's not eager for this, but he knows it's coming. Now this, I find, if, if you really imagine the story, this is very hard to imagine because nothing in Jerusalem can match the temple for, again, that sense of splendor and that sense of permanence. One author says this, Jesus was here preparing the disciples for the days when every familiar and outward religious help would be taken away from them. In the expulsion of the Christian, quote, sect 
from the parent body of Judaism. So could the disciples even grasp this? I mean, this is a hard word. Guys, your religious life as you know it will end. This cultural icon of the temple, your very identity, it's going to go away. So they must have had so many questions and so many doubts. I mean, wait a minute. This temple, this worship that occurs here is prescribed by God. How, how do we worship without the temple? How does that happen? What about the sacrifices? How do we do the sacrifices? Where will we pray? I think some churches experienced this dilemma on a far smaller scale when they left the Episcopal Church. Lost their buildings, journeyed in exile. What now, Lord? What now? This prophecy comes true in 70 AD, only four years after it's completed. This magnificent structure is raised to the ground and wiped from the face of the earth and burned by the Romans. So can you imagine the sadness and the shock of this? How rootless they must have felt. No spiritual home. Back to the land of exile, back to the land of wandering, back to hiding, back to all that. How must that have sat with them? I, I think we can scarcely imagine it. But God isn't in the habit of destroying things on a whim. Okay? He only allows something to be torn down when he has to, when there's no other choice. God does smash our idols. He does. The flood came because the world had grown so wicked. God confused our language and stopped the Tower of Babel. He shut that down. These divine redirects work in and through calamity. But if we're attentive... There's a hope underlying the judgment. There's embers that are waiting to catch flame. Embers. Here's what I mean. There's, this, there's a hope and a consolation the disciples don't know yet. A future hope and a consolation they don't know yet. God doesn't live in a house made of human hands. He's been right under their noses. So the earthly temple, temple disappears and it changes locations. God begins to make his home where? Here. <laughs> In my heart, in your heart, in our collective hearts, in us. What a mad gamble. God's a wild man. Now the temple, the place where he dwells, is portable. You and I don't have to go to Jerusalem to find the Lord. When you encounter his disciples, you encounter him, we're told. You carry the kingdom of God with you wherever you go. Wherever you go. So the temple is now portable because it goes with you to the ends of the earth, we're told which means we're never alone. We're the sent out ones, the Holy Spirit within us. The people of God gathered the body of Jesus on mission. So the temple might disappear, but the place where God dwells does not. It's in us, and that is our great hope, and that is God's promise. Okay, end scene. That was only verses 1 and 2, so we'll pick up the pace a little bit here. Uh, this is uh, verses 3 through 8, and this is a transition because they move over to the Mount of Olives, the place of Jesus' upcoming betrayal, and the temple's still in the distance, so you still have to have that in your mind's eye. Okay? The temple's still there. Perhaps they're gazing at it as they're talking with Jesus. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask him more. Of course they want to know more after that. We can certainly understand that. Two questions. First question, what's the big question they want to know? When? When? That is a question we still ask today, isn't it? We still ask that when question. There is a glut of Christian literature, and some of it, that's a charitable way to describe it, around this that treats the scriptures like a secret decoder ring trying to find out when the end times are. There is an obsession with when. 
And so when they ask that question, we're familiar with it. We know that question. When, Lord? When? That's their first question. Second one, uh, how will we know? Like, what will the signs be, Jesus? How will we know? Now, uh, there are two different conversations going on here. The disciples are asking about the destruction of the temple. That's what they're focused on, and understandably so, given what Jesus just told them. But Jesus is also speaking to the end times. He's using this, quote, little apocalypse to speak of something more than just the temple. Now, notice Jesus describes the signs, but he does not say when. Jesus describes the signs, but he doesn't say when. He won't feed our unhealthy spiritual obsessions. He won't do it. He says in other places, we will not know the hour. The only call is to be ready and not to be unaware. The call is to be awake and alert. And many parables, many of his parables speak about this. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. So Jesus makes no attempt to satisfy our curiosity here. Instead, his aim seems to be a bit more practical. He wants to equip us. So whenever and wherever the disciples express this kind of idle curiosity, he seems to kind of discourage it and shut it down regarding the end times. Okay, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say when. What does he do? Okay, he describes four great spiritual dangers of the end times. And this is verses 2 through 9. So I'm going to go through these four. Four great spiritual dangers in the end times. One of them we've already talked about. Over-reliance upon outward symbols and signs. That's the temple I'm talking about. Over-reliance upon outward symbols and signs. That's verse 2. We've already talked a bit about that. This is that mixing up of appearance and reality. We look at the surface and not at the heart of things that lie beneath it. Jesus has been hammering away at this, hasn't he, in Mark? Throughout Mark, it's true for buildings and it's all the more true for people. Don't confuse appearance and reality. Look to the heart of things. Look to the heart. That's one. Over-reliance upon outward symbols and signs. The four great, great spiritual dangers at the end times. Second one, which you'll be familiar with, false messiahs. This is verses 5 and 6. Some will come in the name of Christ. Some won't. Some will. The church has always battled heresy and false spiritual leaders. This is Nothing new. The wheat and the tares, we're told, grow together until the second coming of Jesus, and then they're separated at the harvest. Wolves are always present amongst the sheep. So do you think we're the first generation of Christians to experience this? What do you think? Are we? No, we're not the first. No. So false messiahs, that's number two. Number three, turmoil in the world around us. Turmoil in the world around us, both here and abroad, the way Jesus describes it. So worsening political situations, coups, violent regimes battling for dominance, don't be alarmed. In fact, Jesus would tell us, don't even be surprised. Now, I'm not saying don't care or don't be engaged. Please don't hear that in anything I'm saying. Please don't. Just keep your cool and maintain a biblical perspective. Remember the big picture. Pray. Act out of peace. Seek the welfare of the city that you live in, and so on. In a sense, it's always been the end of the world, right? If, that, if I can speak out of kind of tongue-in-cheek there. So that's three, turmoil in the world and around us. Four, and this is verse nine, uh, persecution. Now, this is something we're not as well-versed in here in the States, but we certainly know stories from around the globe. Persecution. Don't be tripped up because of the unexpected severity of the persecution of the faithful. Violence is expected. Stay awake, be alert, be discerning. Now, in all these matters, 
Jesus is preparing his disciples and us for what's to come, isn't he? He's preparing them, and he's preparing us. Don't be surprised, Jesus would tell us. Don't be yet another Christian reactionary who's tossed about by every violent occurrence and by every cultural shift that comes down the pike. He prophesied this. Jesus calls these things the beginning of, and this is beautiful, birth pains. Birth pains. Now that sounds familiar in New Testament language, doesn't it? Paul says it in Romans 8, 22. All of creation is moaning, groaning, like a woman in labor waiting for God's consummation, for the return of Jesus, for the restoration of all things, for, for justice, for peace. What a picture. I love that. Now, I'm going to read you some of the birth pains that Jesus cites. See if they sound familiar. War, nations struggling for dominance, natural disasters, famine, persecution, false messiahs. We just went through this whole list. Uh, you think things are bad now, worse than they've ever been? I have to tell you, folks, and I mean this sincerely, this isn't a, a jab. I'd encourage you to read history because there's nothing new under the sun. School shootings, wildfires, downed airplanes, persecution, violence, failed negotiations, ceasefires that are all too brief, nations at war. So I don't want to take our care out of these things or say, hey, don't worry about it. It's all good. Jesus is coming back. But I do want to normalize this and say, this has been prophesied. Don't be surprised, okay? Jesus tells us that these birth pains are a sign of the end times. All this is the beginning of the world's labor pains, the telos, the end, the goal and aim of history, which is the final establishment of God's full rule, which is yet to come. So, uh, if you ask me, Pastor Joel, do we live in the end times? Yeah, we do. And by the end times, you know what I mean? The time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. So yes, we live in the end times. Creation has been groaning in these end times, these birth pains, for some 2,000 plus years. Some very prolonged birth pains. I think we can all agree on that. It's been eagerly awaiting the redemption of all things. And the church has been laboring alongside the world in her better moments. The church in her better moments, I should say, has been laboring alongside the world. That's a better way to put it. So let's end here. Um, I, as I think and pray about this, perhaps the role of the church is to be a midwife of the world. Perhaps the role of the church is to be a midwife of the world, laboring alongside her. We are called to groan alongside creation. We are called to labor unto the restoration of all things. We are called to yearn, to wait for Jesus' return, while also staying fully engaged in the world and doing his work in these end times. So what work does the church need to do? How can we be a midwife in the world? How can we be a midwife to the world? Two points. Keep it real simple, okay? One, engage in the here and now. Don't be disconnected. Don't be disengaged. Don't bury your head in the sand. Be invested in the here and now. The pregnant mom needs our attention, if I can press the metaphor a little bit here. We need to be attentive and watchful. It's not the time to be callous or to grow hard or to lose our courage and our nerve and our resolve. We must live out the kingdom in our day and age in tangible, spirit-led ways. So engage in the here and now. That's one. Two, uh, eyes on the future. And if you think I'm talking about hope, gold star. Absolutely. I am talking about hope. And I'm going to give you a quote. This is Gabriel Marcel. This will bend your mind a little bit, but it's a good one. Hope is a memory of the future. 
Hope is a memory of the future. Keep your eyes on the future. The pain of childbirth is quickly forgotten once what happens? The child is born. That's the end goal. The child. Joy, new life, a birth, celebration. So we need to hold both. We need to be engaged in the here and now, and we need to hope for the future, right? Let's not resort to Christian escapism. Please, that pie in the sky, you heard that saying, you're so focused on heaven, you're of no earthly good. You heard that one? We can't be escapist, but neither can we focus only on what we see here on the earth because that will lead us to despair and hopelessness. So we have to hold both. We have to hold the now and the not yet of Jesus's prophecy. We've got to hold those together. So we'll conclude right here. Uh, we're about to enter a new year. The church has a different calendar. We hit the new year about a month earlier than the rest of the world. So Advent is coming, a new year. And so this passage strikes me as a really timely reminder. There's a certain consolation. There's a certain comfort here, a tender, vulnerable hope. Even when appearances and birth pains tell us otherwise, when we see violence in our nation or persecution elsewhere, there is a deeper reality at work. A child is to be born who brings about hope. And hope is a memory of the future. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.